Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the Casting Light Podcast, we have lighting designer, lighting programmer, media designer, media programmer, among many other things, Chris Lose. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Good. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. So you're based in Las Vegas, right? Correct. I've been here for about 17 years now. I moved here from Reno for a job with Verilite, where I worked in the shop as a moving light tech for about four years. Interesting. So many of the folks working in the sort of upper echelons of the business these days started out at Verilite. Yeah. I feel like I the, the, the time I had at Verilite was more useful than any other time I've ever had. Just knowing what's available, who's doing what. The inner workings of moving lights has been so important to being able to program and design with them. There's a lot of people out there that just... that only start with design and then they have no idea what the capabilities are of the moving lights. If you don't know what a light's capable of, you don't know what you can add to the show. Exactly. I totally agree with you. It's, uh, you know, it, it's easy to miss out on some of the things they can do for you if you don't really understand them. So what it, so specific, so sort of specifically, like, so how long have you been doing this? Is it say 17 years? Uh, I started in high school, uh, in about, I started in Northern California where I went to Annalee High School. I found out that I could get out of all my other classes by going to the theater route and uh, stay long hours away from home being uh, a theater guy, which was nice. Uh, I originally got into it out for a girl who, she's gone, but I still have the theater, which has always been nice. I immediately fell in love with theater, just being a being able to do a little bit of everything, knowing different, being able to use different parts of my brain, different different tools. None of us are really a specialized technician in any one field. We all have to know a little bit of each side of theater, and that all, that really appealed to me. Especially in an educational setting, everyone has to do everything. Right on the theater side, uh, lighting is involved in carpentry and scenery and costumes, and I really enjoyed that part of it. I knew very early on that that's all I was ever going to do. To this day, I haven't had any jobs outside of the theater world since then. I would be painfully unqualified for anything else at this point. Although it sounds like you're pretty qualified for this job. Yeah. If you manage to work consistently in the business with no other jobs. I remember telling my father that I was going to quit football to take up the theater and kind of looked me up and down. He's like, "Ah." You don't look gay, but okay, I support your decision. Oh, boy. Yes. It probably wasn't until seven years later when I had a couple shows I could bring my dad to see that he kind of understood that theater actually was a profession and not just a hobby. No, what's funny about that is, I mean, you probably have a better chance of making a living in theater than you do in football. (laughs) Very true. Very true. I wish I could have pointed that out then, but... It, yeah, I had to show it to him to make it make it all work. All right, so I'm glad that got uh, that got sorted out. And what what is it that you do now? Like, what parts of the business do you work in mostly now? 
currently, I am the lighting director for Fleetwood Mac. We just finished our 120-show world tour. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Arlo Guthrie was my lighting designer for that one. He was very nice to allow me to come on to that one. We did a lot of programming together. Uh, I did get to hand, put in a handful of my looks, but it was clearly his design and all of his ideas that made everything spectacular. Okay. So you discovered theater in high school, yep. and that's clearly worked out. But like, what happened then? Because you don't really work in theater now, right? After high school, I moved on to Santa Rosa Junior College, which in the same space had an educational side during the school year, and it also had a repertory theater during the summer, which is where I really learned the hardness of theater where we did seven shows in a repertory style, you know, two shows a day of different shows doing one show for a uh, matinee and then another headline that night. That was tough and still loved it after that. Uh, it was good to come from a small town that was able to support theater. I'm definitely thankful for that. Uh, after that, I was started looking for an actual university, and I ended up going to University of Nevada, Reno. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my stepping stone towards Vegas. I thought it would be like Vegas, except I could still go skiing. Except Reno turned out to be far too boring of a town. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't handle it. It was too cold and too dismal. On top of going to school there, I ended up working at the Flamingo as a follow spot operator for Carnival of Wonders. Uh, that lasted... About two years, uh, I moved up from follow spot operator to console operator, which was, I was the youngest one at the time in the theater, and yet they moved me up to operator, which didn't go over so well with the other crew members, but I was good at it, and I really enjoyed it. Well, what was the console? A Strand 520i, which had mostly, which was great for conventional fixtures, and you could probably put a dozen moving lights on it. I think we had, I believe they were cyber lights at the time, but it was fun to actually figure out what, how you program moving lights and how you can get things to move at the right time. And You know, Laura Frank, she was our first interview for the season, and it says that one of the best ways to learn how moving lights work is to work with a simple two-scene preset or like an expression-style console with a single fixture and just see what the channels do as you move them up and down. So, so that way you, you, you sort of intimately understand that before you move into things where there's an abstraction layer and the information the console is showing you doesn't actually have any, anything to do with the values that are being sent to the fixture. So it's great that you had that opportunity to work that way. Yeah. I feel like it's a lot of people nowadays, they miss that part because it's just so easy to hop into some of the bigger consoles that do all of that stuff for you. Uh, I would say the best example of that is Move in Black, which is a standard option on so many consoles now, whereas you used to have to program an out cue, a movement cue, and then back up cue, whereas consoles just know that that's what you want to do now. Yeah. And that but, used to be so time-consuming. Yes. But e even now, you still have to know how to do that because there are times where Move in Black doesn't work or there, you know, whatever the limitations of the system you're using, there are, there are going to be reasons that you're going to have to do that anyway. So you should, you should understand that. Or, uh, I mean, the Strand was even pre-effects engines, which is, I don't know if there's many rock and roll consoles out now that don't have effects engines. They're, to build a pan or a ballyhoo used to take so long. You would just have to build a three-step 
chase and put them into a triangle and hope it worked out the same every time. Yeah. That was my first time program slash operating. And I totally fell in love with that. Just being in control of the look of the show. It felt great calling spot cues and it definitely appealed to my OCD artsy side that I could be in control of it from front and be able to call shows. It was, it's still today. I still get, I still in the middle of the show, just like, I can't believe that I know how to do this. This is so weird to me. So is, is that job how you got connected with Verilite? So what happened then was one of the guys from the local vendors brought in some uh, VL fives and sixes at the time mm-hmm. to see if we wanted to replace some of the cybers and some of the conventional lights. Yeah. And I'd never seen them before. And I told him I have to know more about these fixtures. And I got to do one boxing match that actually used them with a with a hog two. And I immediately talked to the designer. I want to know more about these. Who do I talk to to learn more? And they just didn't have much in Reno. So I went and did an online search for jobs with Verilite. I applied for a position in Vegas for Verilite Production Services. And I got that one. So I moved to Vegas. I went to school at UNLV for theater. All while I would go to work on moving lights during the day and school at night. Okay. And then eventually a few people weren't able to do some conventional stuff. So I got to get put out on the show floor. I did a couple corporate events as a moving light tech with VLPS. Then after I'd been out in the field a couple times, I couldn't work on moving lights in the shop anymore. I wasn't a shop guy anymore. I had to be out on shows. So I went to my boss then and said, hey, if you got any more shows, put me out. And shortly after that, 9-11 happened. Yeah. And nobody could fly into Vegas, but events still had to happen. So I got put on a lot of shows where people just couldn't come into town. And it was, I definitely wasn't ready. I had no idea all the other, I knew how to work on moving lights, but I did not know all the networking and the cabling and all that. So I had to learn that really quick. This was about that time where we were adding all the DMX ports to the smart repeaters. Yeah, the VL protocol was slowly going away because with the VL protocol, a lot of the information was saved in the repeater and now nobody wanted that anymore. They wanted the, all the information on the console. Well, I know one of the other issues was that you couldn't work with the fixtures at all if they weren't there. Like you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't program if the fixtures weren't present, which is kind of kind of crazy if you think about it, but you had to have the ring complete. That's right. Yeah, I remember that being a really tr- tough transition, putting DMX into all of the Verilite stuff, especially when it, the VL2s and 4s were still working and people wanted to use them and there's... They're like, well, make them listen to DMX. And oh, we they, had got, to they do got that. it too? Yeah. Shortly after that, I got a an offer to go do some cruise ships as because they had a Strand 520i. Okay. So I started, I left the shop and took a job cruising on Crystal Harmony. I uh, did about three years as what they called was the production manager, but it was actually just the lighting guy. Uh, and we ran a, a handful of time-coded shows, but we also got to program a lot of one-offs and variety acts. The time-coded pre-programmed shows were done by one programmer, 
And then a handful of the variety acts that had been on the ship forever had a different programmer. And then all the new ones that were coming on were, was me. So all the show files had different ways of managing scrollers. Awesome. And everybody had their own patch and their own thing. And you, it was so time consuming. And then having to explain to people why it was taking me so long to load up a file. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you learned there that you're really, you know, as, as hard as it was, what are some of the things that you, that you got there that you just, that you're just, that you keep drawing on again and again? Uh, one of the things that was most important to me is just don't tell anybody that you can't do something. And our, it's lighting. We can make anything happen. We just, I mean, everything's going to happen anyway. It's our job to just make it look good. Always start with a yes was something that always worked out really well for me. It's like, yes, I can do that. Give me a little bit of time to figure out how I can do it, but I'll figure it out. Uh, I felt like that good attitude always worked, suited me really well and got me a few more places than people who would just say no the first time. Like, no, can't do that. And then later on, they were like, well, I really need that. And then next thing you know, they figure out that they can do it. And then it would just be, well, why did you say you can't do it in the first place? Yeah. It's tough uh, to come back from that. I think about that a lot. People just would come on and ask for something. The one that I'm thinking of most particularly right now is a, a black light. They don't just turn on and off. But uh, somebody needed a black light on at this time and this time and this time. And my production manager at the time said, no, you can't do that. That's not how black lights work. And eventually we figured out a way to make it happen and it took some work and we took a little motor and a, basically invented a dimmer for it. But by the time that show was over, somebody came to him and said, well, why did you tell me you can't do that? Obviously, Chris, Chris could make that happen. Why did you tell me you can't? Yeah. That became a big issue. Some of the other things I learned on the ship, manage your time. Everybody wants something from you. You got to be able to tell people, like, yes, I can do that. It's going to take me a little bit of time. I can't give it to you immediately, but it's programming. It takes time. So after the cruise ships, I went back to, came back to Vegas. Verilite had been purchased by PRG. I told them I didn't want to go back to the shop. And they said, well, the only other position I have for you is touring. And I said, sign me up for that. Then I want to tour. Okay. And I got my first gig as a dimmer tech on Pearl Jam, which was a great first gig. They were amazing. They're really great guys. We did a North America and Canada tour with them. It was a little bit intimidating going out on my first tour as the Dimmer Tech. There were a few other guys on the tour that were far more experienced than me. They're like, why am I not the Dimmer Tech? And the only reason that I ended up getting the Dimmer Tech is because I was available to go learn moving motors. I got to learn the cyber hoist system. Oh, okay. So they sent me to training for cyber hoist. And then, well, now that you know cyber hoist, you're the dimmer tech. I've never been to dimmer tech. Oh, well, you're the dimmer tech. (laughs) (laughs) There's no time to learn like the present. Exactly. So I got, uh, I got sent out to that and that was, that was tough. I've never cried in the shower before, but, just getting beat up so hard on there. Everybody yelling. The time constraints were just insane. They want you to load out as fast as possible. Whereas I'd come from the corporate side where you have all these stagehands and all this time to load out because the show's over. And in the rock and roll world, they just want you out of the venue as fast as possible. And 
everybody's screaming at you. And I didn't, I wasn't ready for that. I hacked my way through it. And by the end, everybody was pretty happy with the way I'd done it. I liked it enough. I wanted to do it again. After that, I moved over to do Bonnie Raitt, which was great. Now that I had Dimmer Tech under my belt, I became the crew chief for Bonnie Raitt. I was the crew chief of one. Dan O'Brien was the LD, and it was done on a Hog 2. And that was great. I had one truck worth of gear, three straight sticks, and some floor lights. Load in at 9 a.m., be done by 1. Nice. The rest of the day to mess mess around in the town that you were in. Be back by 6 for the opener, and just to turn on the hazers. And that was great. I could have done that forever. That was Still today, the most relaxing touring I'd ever come across. It was, <laughs> nice. It was nice. All the crew on one bus. Everybody got along. Everybody was nice and agreeable. And then I got the offer to go out on Bonnie Raid again or go to Elton John. And so I moved over to Elton John thinking it would be more prestigious, which it was. But it turned out to just be a lot more work for the same amount of money. And going from a one light, a one truck tour to a five truck tour, and being going from being a crew chief of one to being the fourth on a team of five, it turned out to be a lot more work than I had uh, expected for sure. It was nice to be able to tell my parents I work with Elton John. That was probably the first time that my parents actually kind of understood that theater was kind of exciting and that they. Probably actually that they were proud of the fact that I was working with Elton John. It was actually something that they knew and that they could actually recognize for sure. After Elton John, I did a handful of gigs with PRG, including the 2004 Olympics and the 2007 Special Olympics. And then once I met my wife, we decided it was time to not do touring anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were getting very serious and we knew that it was time to settle down somewhere. So being in Vegas, I thought that the only real theater gig in Vegas would be to take a house gig with Cirque du Soleil. And so I applied at Ka and got the gig as the moving light tech for Ka over at the uh, MGM. So I know a lot of attention gets paid to the opening of a new Cirque show. But I imagine the maintenance is a really, really huge job. It's nonstop maintenance. There's an entire team of people just during the day just to fill the notes that have happened that night. Mm-hmm. And because it's so technical, it's not just cleaning lights. It's it's welding. It's uh, moving entire rooms around. And it's very expensive and very time-consuming. Welding because you're welding up uh, parts for fixture hanging positions? Exactly. One of the performers feels he might hit this moving light if he jumps too high or something. Please move the fixture to a place that doesn't exist and make something exist there so that we can put that light there. On top of all the actual maintenance of the moving lights, on top of the maintenance of the conventional lights, and then once all that's done, then you still have to go and change out fluorescent fixtures and ballasts and Ka had insane amounts of running lights and floor lights. It's just that crucial. I understand that. And that started to make me feel like a like a mechanic. I wasn't actually part of the show anymore. Uh, that lasted a few months, and I was lucky enough to get promoted to the assistant head of lighting for Mustaire over at Treasure Island. And luckily, I at least got to operate the show. 
but the show had been running for 15 years at the time. And so when I moved over to there, I was told right off the bat, like, you're not going to be changing anything. You're not going to be advancing anything. Just maintain the show. So at least I wasn't maintaining lights anymore, but I was still just a, basically a curator. Just make sure the show still happens. But with the oldest rig, it probably has the most issues. Exactly. However, the team had been there for, you know, some of the guys had been there for the entire 16 years. Wow. There was no new tricks coming up. There was no new problems. Anything that could have arised has, had already arisen for sure. They knew when this breaks, you do this. If this breaks, you do this. If this breaks, you call that person and he fixes that. So I lasted there about two years. And then I took some freelance gigs just to get out on the road again and uh, try some new things. And through the grapevine there, I had heard that the lighting designer at the joint at the Hard Rock in Las Vegas had left. So I kind of called him up and said, hey, I don't know how to put this any better, but I want your old gig really bad. And I would love to work in rock and roll again and I couldn't have been happier at the joint. Everything was amazing. A beautiful rig, beautiful room. So what was that job like? What, you know, what specifically were, were your responsibilities? So when the uh, touring acts would come through, I would just be a glorified master electrician, tie in power, uh, facilitate their rig into our room. Uh, if they wanted to use the house rig, which was fairly impressive, uh, I would help them with that. And then for the corporate events, I would actually become a lighting designer. I would actually be able to run the rig with my, uh, when I started, it was a Grand MA1. And about halfway through, we were lucky enough to get a Grand MA2, which was amazing. We had all the coolest gear, all the, all the best programmers, all the best LDs would come through. I got to meet everybody in the business working at the joint, uh, even the it being a 4,000-seat club, we would have all the up-and-coming bands. We would also have all the arena-sized bands coming through that they would have to scale down to fit into the joint. Yeah. Uh, fitting everything from Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, Kiss, Def Leppard. All the guys that could easily do arenas would come into the joint just because it's the joint. Um. Got to learn tons of troubleshooting skills. People coming in, like, we need to fit this many lights in this room. We're like, well, it's not designed for that. Well, we're going to do it anyway, so figure it out. Um, so many different consoles coming through from Avo lights to handmade consoles that you've never heard of. People actually designing their own forms of DMX. Yeah, what do you mean, like, design their own? I want to say it was like Stone Sour and Buck Cherry or something. The LD for the band before those two, who I don't remember, actually had designed his own console that he ran, and he had a hundred different connections and MIDI triggers, and it was something he had just designed in France in his garage. Well, that's cool. Yeah. He wanted to run a six-universe rig with his homemade console, and we figured out how to make it happen. Cool. That, that felt good. He had actually soldered his own DMX boards and processors, and he was very proud of it. And rightfully so. 
working at the joint, I'd still be there today if it hadn't been for the offer from Arlo to go do Fleetwood Mac. The the shows were just amazing. You couldn't sit farther than a hundred feet from the band, which is why people love the joint so much. You could come see an arena sized tour and be 50 feet instead of 400 feet away from the show. The joint was built in a great fashion. Three loading dock doors, just 10 feet from the stage, short push, more power than you could need. You know, plenty of power, stage left, stage right. The chairs folded away underneath the stage. We could transform that room so fast from corporate event to rock show uh, with a ribbon grid. So no fly system above to hinder anything, just an all ribbon grid system. You could hang a motor wherever you wanted. And of course, everybody has different demands. Some people want to film it and some people want to just do it rock and roll. And so you've got to make everybody happy with all this just hodgepodge of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what made me so happy about when I got the call to go do Fleetwood Mac because I had been punting and just jamming shows together for so long. I was really excited about the idea of sitting down and putting together a show with a cue list and be able to execute that show perfectly over and over and over again where I knew everything that was going to happen. And that has been... That was great for quite a while to just be able to do the same show. And I knew where every hit was some consistency, I guess, is what was, yeah. was the word I'm looking for. So how did uh, Paul Arlo Guthrie get in touch with you? Uh, so what happened was I was at the joint and I was looking for a programmer position elsewhere. And Steve Richards uh, who was the LD at Lady for Lady Antebellum when I met him, he hit me up and asked if I want to do a summer tour. And my kids were just turned two. So my wife was like, okay, tell you what, I can handle the kids now. Why don't you take a summer tour just to get it out of your system? So Steve Richards gave me that option. And it was just going to be a 28-day summer tour with The Voice. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about the voice tour. So what was the structure of that show? Uh, that was where once the season, the, te- the TV season over, they take all of the winners and send them on a summer tour to promote themselves. We took season one through six winners, and we toured the U.S. and Canada. And it turned out really well. I don't know if the ticket sales were as, as great as they wanted it to be, but the tour made money. And I got to program the show with Steve Richards. We got to do a lot of media stuff. The tour was medium-sized. It was mostly theaters. Nothing was the same every one day, every day. We had to constantly resize the rig for different – we had ballrooms and theaters. And some days we got the upstage trusses. Some days we didn't, stuff like that. So So what drove those decisions and sort of who made them? Oscar designed the rig from The Voice, uh, the television show. He handed it off to Steve Richards, who we had about four days of programming and rehearsals in Texas. And then once he let me know everything that he expected to happen, then I got to make all those decisions. Okay. 
So I would I would consider my position was lighting director programmer on that one. And then once Steve left, I would make the decisions that the lighting designer would have made if he was there. About three quarters of the way through that tour, I got a call from Arlo asking if I wanted to do Fleetwood Mac. He said, hey, I hear you, you're touring again. And I said, well, I'm not really touring again. I'm just doing a, a summer tour. He said, well, I heard you're doing pretty good. You want to take a crack at Fleetwood Mac? So I called my wife and said, hey, I was offered another tour. And she said, no, you're coming back home. I got two kids at home. You got to <laughs> come get back home. And I told her, well, it's going to pay pretty well. It's a good gig. She's like, I don't care. Come back. You're going to go back to the joint. Uh, you were told, I told you you can do one summer tour. And then I told her it was Fleetwood Mac. And she said, well, I guess I'll miss you. Uh, my wife's a huge Fleetwood Mac slash Stevie Nicks fan, and so we just couldn't pass it up. And that was a year and a half ago. We've done 120 shows since then, U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, and most recently New Zealand. Uh, so, so when you went internationally, I imagine you didn't take the rig with you. Did you do a pickup rig in those countries? Uh, we took all the things that were specific. Uh, we've got uh, automated trust system. We took all that. We took all the best boys and best boy spots and washes. Uh, once we got over to Europe, we had all the X4s sourced there from PRG Europe. So a sim similar fixtures to the voice. Yeah. I would say Fleetwood Mac had more gear than you should ever show throw at a no-haze tour. That was the that was another interesting thing. Uh, programming without haze is was very interesting, which I don't think a lot of people outside of our outside of our business understand until they go and see a show with no haze. To program without haze, you you've limited yourself, so you have to make yourself creative in so many other ways. Uh, it became very video heavy at that point. Without actually seeing the beams, you don't have so many of your tools available to you, like. Gobos don't mean much. Yeah. We had clay packy BIs with their crazy shape settings, and those you just don't get to see any of the stuff that the BI is doing without haze. Unless you're looking at the fixture. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. And that's what we would have to do. We just have to take the BIs and point them at the audience to get the maximum output and actually show off that they're impressive. So, so you're essentially the head of the lighting department on the tour. How is that a little bit different from uh, sort of being the head at uh, the Hard Rock or at Cirque, uh, you know, when it comes to things like maintenance and making sure the show is the same every night? As a lighting director on Fleetwood Mac, I was calling my own show, and it was my job to keep my specific part of the show consistent. I didn't have to oversee the maintenance anymore. I didn't have to oversee any of the other departments, I just had to make sure that my show calling and my cue timing was consistent. Uh, my crew chief's name was Ronnie Beal. He works for PRG. He was a crew chief of five. It was him and four other people from PRG who were all great. For everything rig-related, it was his job to take care of all that, which took a lot off my plate. Instead of having to show up at 6 a.m. now, I can show up at 1 p.m., and the rig will already be built by the time I get there. 
And my job would be to set up my consoles and a front of house snake. Whereas up until this, I had always been very hands-on loading, unloading trucks, setting up gear, running cables, hanging lights. Whereas uh, that was all taken off my plate now as a uh, as lighting director. And then Arlo would be there. He came to the first five shows and very much the same. He would tell me what he expected the rig to look like on a daily basis. And it was my job to make sure that his uh, vision was followed out the way he would want it to be. Uh, for the first month or so of the, of the show, if any changes were made, I would send him an email and ask his opinion. Like, hey, uh, Stevie wants this. Lindsay wants this. What do you think? And then after enough responses where it was just, yeah, Chris, you got it right. That's the way I would have done it. Then finally, we didn't have to email as much anymore. It was just, cool, you, you're making the right choices, so why don't you just make all the, decision, all the decisions? There are some designers I know that have had their lighting directors kind of, kind of trying to end around on them and try and take their job. Part of me gets that, like, I understand what, you know, like why after a year you thought that, well, no, 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 no. This, this, this is mine. But also, you owe them that year of work. Right. That takes a, it takes a long time because basically you're doing the same job that he would be doing while he's away. And it's where the, the, the roles of lighting designer and lighting director kind of get blurry after rehearsals because you're making all the same decisions that the lighting designer would be making. It can get tricky. You can start to think that you are the lighting designer and you have to currently constantly remind yourself, like, I am not the designer. I didn't, I'm only here because the designer put me here. It's my opinion that in most cases, lighting programmers essentially have to be lighting designers because just knowing the console in and out isn't really enough except for really, really technical kinds of things, you know, where, where someone knows exactly what everything looks like and you're just essentially doing data entry. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my opinion, at least. You know, you have to understand design. Um, what do you think makes a good programmer? Uh, I actually had a really interesting conversation with Nook about this one not too long ago, and we were talking about how... That'll be Nook Schoenfeld, who... He's the editor of PLSN. Yeah. I hate to keep going back to this one, but I think the number one quality is just attitude. I think just forging that relationship with your designer, who who's going to be responsible for what and who's going to be able to do it the best way to fulfill the designer's vision. The line gets really blurry sometimes between what an operator is and what a programmer is and what a director is based on their skill sets. So if a programmer can figure out what the designer wants fast enough, he can just start doing it with enough right answers. You just The designer will just hand over the reins and say, yeah, you're doing it right. You go for it. Uh, one of my best friends and neighbors, Craig Caserta, is great at that. He'll just take a rig from a designer and say, yep, I know what you're going with this. I know what you're going with that. In a matter of hours, he'll put together a show and then show it to the designer. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. How did you know? And he's like, well, that's, that's what comes with timing and experience. And I think that becomes a, a huge advantage that some of us have if we have a lighting design background. Once you're sitting in front of the console, you just you just go and you you don't stop until the designer tells you that I hate that look and I <laughs> I feel like you've totally gone off the rails with that look, but well let's rein it in on that one and you know and basically you're just looking for final approval. Uh, I know that Nook several times has been 
part of shows where he has to say every single cue that he wants to happen and when he has to do it exactly which color and i know that a lot of other people once that relationship has been forged you can kind of say you know you've already you kind of have an idea of what i'm going to want so why don't you put something together i'll say yes or no so i would say the best quality that you're looking for is that relationship of just knowing what each person's capability is and what their experience level is Tell me about a really outside-of-the-box solution you came up with for a project. One of the ones I was most proud of was out on the cruise ship. They had a permanent installation solution that they had outsourced to the lowest bidder, obviously. And it was a... Because it's a cruise ship. Of course. Uh... It was basically a fiber optic system that lit up all the walls in the theater. And the cruise ship had been up and running for a year before I got there. And for a year, nobody could figure out how to make these things work the way they wanted to. They could get them to strike, and they could get them to color change, but they could never get them to work in the way that they wanted to. And of course, this was pre when all the manuals were online and you could just get a hold of anything. So I was actually able to write letters to the manufacturer and figure out what had happened only to find out there was a hidden dummy channel inside the fixtures. And if you ever wanted to program them with timing, there was a hidden timing channel. So obviously somehow that timing channel had been set to full. So you couldn't actually do anything because every feature had a 1,000 second time on it. M speed. Exactly. So after beating my head against the wall several times trying to get that M speed set to zero, I was able to take the time and figure out what the problem was, which saved the company. I was going to file a lawsuit over the fact that these things didn't work. And of course, the manufacturer said, no, they work fine. We sent you exactly what you asked for. And the designer would be like, well, they don't work. I've done everything. I don't know if that's really outside the box, but I felt like that was one of the ones where I was, I'd actually solved something that nobody else could solve for sure. All right. And then talk about a show that you've seen that really inspired you or just blew you away. Most recently, the one that inspired me the most was Ed Sheeran at Rock and Rio. That was absolutely amazing because he was on the same night as Taylor Swift. And Taylor Swift came with, I can only imagine, was 16, 17, 18 semis worth of gear and 20 performers, 20 more dancers. And she did a great job on that stage. And then Ed Sheeran came out with just... Ed Sheeran. It was just him, an acoustic guitar, and a loop pedal. And he captivated the same audience that it took her millions of dollars in production value, as opposed to Ed Sheeran standing on a stage by himself in front of three roll-on video walls and maybe 50 different lighting looks. It, it reminded me that it's not all about the production value. There's a certain lot 
just a lot to be said about just the confidence of the artist and the product and the the talent value that's just inherent in theater and shows. Well, and going big isn't always the right answer. It's you know minimalism can have immense power. Yeah. You just if you're not afraid to rock a show in front of thirty thousand people by yourself, then good on you. You go for it. Yeah. I can only imagine that there are plenty of managers and production managers that told him like, no, you need a band. You need you're going to be on this eighty foot wide by a hundred feet deep stage. You can't just do it by yourself. And he was brave enough to say, no, I I can do that. And he did, and it was amazing. You know, and therein lies the thing you said earlier about lighting so I can hand off the programmer and the program can kind of throw it together. And it's like, well, it's because they've seen a billion of these shows and they kind of know what happens. But there is something to be said for going, no, 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 no. Because someone's like, well, oh, you, you need a billion lights in the audience's eyes. You need a billion lights lighting up all the haze. You need a billion, you know, fill in the blank. And it's like, no, we don't need that. We're doing something different here. And in its difference and in its minimalism, it's going to be stunning and it's going to be unique. Yeah. And that's why designers make the big bucks, because they're the ones that are willing and brave enough to make those decisions. So you're a programmer, you program a lot. Uh, you know, I, I had a question that came up during my interview with Randy Wade with Morpheus. Yeah. And that was, I'm not sure that the current control paradigm really works with some of the newest fixtures and newest concepts out there. Color is becoming a real problem, especially when we, when we start using video. Like, I really like that, you know, like on consoles like Hog 4 and on EOS, I can, I, can, I can plug video into the console and then play it back across a fixture array. Or with MA2, you can take video from their media server and then, and then essentially, like, pour it into the console. Uh-huh. But this has no way of interacting with, with fixtures that, that have more than RGB. So if I have right. uh, fixtures that have four colors, five colors, seven colors, the video content isn't interacting with the other colors. And right. the video could look way richer and way better if it did interact with them. And I feel like that has to get sorted out too. Yeah. Uh, I've recently been doing a lot of pixel mapping and it is really time consuming to go through and skip the amber channel and the white channel or the, the I think some of the new stuff even has like a magenta channel or like an off magenta channel just so you can get those the well, super like, rich you know, if, if they're if they're the Celador concept that e, that ETC bought and turned into the the Celador strip lights and the cell, you know, and then turned into the some of their other fixtures, you know, it's seven colors, and you want to be able to use all that. Yeah, when I'm patching fixtures and I can only use the RGB, I, it it is kind of it's lame that you can't use the white because the white we all know the white is so much better than the RGB white. Yeah, yeah, I would love to be able to. That's a good point. I would love to be able to let the media server know that it has an amber channel and you should use it. Like there should be some way to tune, you know, like this is the fixture's amber. Right. So use that. Yeah. This is the fixture's indigo. Use that. Yeah. You know, you, you're the same way you're figuring out what to send to red, what to send to green expand it and let me add additional colors, you know, and then just like I said, just let me tune it. So, you know, when I'm, when you see, you know, like, so, so on this individual fixture type, this is the, there's another color mix channel and it's this color. Yeah. That's a really good point. Now I, I think there's another way, which is sort of, are you familiar with the prism projection fixtures? 
No, what's that? So they're a, they're a series of LED uh, lights. They started out with just a PC fixture, and then they moved on to a Fresnel, and then moved on to this uh, to this profile fixture that uh, have multiple different emitters. And there is no way for you to interact directly with those emitters because there's too many of them. It doesn't make sense. But y- there's a, there's a feature where if you use um, you can use you, you can describe the color you're looking for using IEC coordinates. So if you can imagine essentially dialing up the color you want by saying, I want these coordinates in the IEC color space. And the fixture has a, um, a sensor at the end of it where it makes sure it's making that color. And if it's not, it readjusts so it is making that color. So I think this could work too, where we take that responsibility away from the console and give it to the fixture and say, we're going to communicate with fixtures using IEC coordinates henceforth. Fixtures have to be able to accept IEC input and make those colors, or as close as they can to those colors. Nice. So that that means that every manufacturer has to calibrate the way the fixture thinks to to, to that. And I think that could also be a great solution to the problem. Yeah. And then that would deal with the video problem, you know, where the video is just sending, you know, all it's sending is IEC information, and the fixture is making that using whatever number of colors it has to make it. I want this color. It's up to you, up to your fixture to give me that color. Yes. I think that's another option. And, you know, oh. obviously Prism saw that kind of saw that kind of coming and they built a fixture like that, but no one else has done that yet. I look forward to that. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on 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 sort of the, st- the state of control and, you know, what could be better, what you'd like to see? I remember thinking when I had the Grand MA1 that there was nothing more than a that I would ever want from a console. Until the Grand MA2 came out, and now there's, I was way wrong. There's so many more things you can do with a console that could never have been done on the MA1. I am really looking forward to getting rid of the DMX protocol someday and go to all, I just want to run Ethernet throughout the whole rig. And I want the lights to self-populate on the console. I want the consoles, I want the fixtures to be able to talk to my console and say, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Tell me what you want me to do. I feel like that's going to happen someday. I feel like the DMX cable is going to go away and it's all going to be replaced with Ethernet. I feel like if that doesn't happen, I feel like the wireless is going to happen. I know current tours are going out now completely without a front house snake. They're just doing wireless. I was just talking with Preston Hoffman, who did widespread panic that way he did not have to run a front house snake for the tour and he was just running i think it was at least 20 universes of dmx in madison square garden without running wires up to the grid and back so so you're so you're looking forward to to some more technical things everything that's coming out is way above what i would have ever considered as a designer before like the the BIs and the the Cosmo picks and the magic panels. I never would have imagined anything like that. So no, that has far surpassed my my realm of imagination. Honestly, the thing that has impressed me more than anything else, I'd say in the past twelve months, maybe even no, longer than that, way longer than that, is absolutely ground control. Oh yeah. That is that's cool. Like this is this is a new concept. This is something we haven't seen before. This is this is something that I you know that 
uh, you know, it, you know, anyone could have said, oh, I'd love something like that, but I just don't know how you'd make it. And, you know, it came down to really smart guys just beating the beating against the problem for, I think they said like six years to come up with that. Yeah. That's really exciting, especially because it opens up other things. You know, we're reducing the amount of weight we're flying. Yeah. Because it goes way beyond just the operator. The fixture weighs less. And mm-hmm. there's no operator. There's no spot chair. There's no lifelines. There's there's no lots and lots and lots of things. There's, there's no clear com cable. There's any number of other things that we don't have to rig now. Right. You know, th- anything we can remove from the rig to make th- to make things safer is good. And getting guys out of the rig and putting putting them on the ground is great. Yeah. I am positive that if those were available when the Fleetwood Mac tour left out, we would have had those because we've had to deal with so many different follow spot operators. And it's only because you can't fly a, a spot bridge everywhere. You have to use their follow spots and their spot operators in certain places, but you can generally fly a single stick of trust that has six moving lights on it you can do that and now you've got your six follow spot operators in a safe location somewhere that's not blocking anybody's view and you get consistent follow spots yeah well maybe i'm maybe, positive we've had those maybe, maybe not consistent because you still you still have local operators because right i can't imagine a tour is going to travel with six spot operators no uh on fleetwood mac i was lucky enough to have three of my own oh wow yeah. And then in Europe, you get to use truck drivers. So you do have the six same people, but they're not always exactly the spot operators that you're hoping for. How does that work? I mean, that so like when do they have time to, you know, sleep so that so that way they're not dangerous on the road? They drive, they sleep during the day, show up, uh, you know, eight o'clock when the show starts and then load out, drive and it's pretty amazing. It it works for them. They get their they still get a good eight hours of sleep, just have to do it during the day. That just seems mean. Yeah. They're happy to have the money though. I'm sure. Yeah. All right. So um I think we're winding down here. What what's some what's some advice you might have for new folks? My best advice that I've had recently for new people is just take full advantage of all of the information that's online nowadays, uh, including LinkedIn and Facebook and blogs. There's so much more information available to people than we ever had before. I remember carrying around a giant stack of user manuals and pamphlets and dip switch charts and all that stuff is so easy now to just I my tool now is a USB stick and my phone. I don't have to show up on site with mountains of paperwork anymore. I just embrace the digital age. I like to go on LinkedIn and find out who's doing what. I like to go on Facebook and see pictures of who's where and when and don't be afraid to reach out to LDs. There's a lot of us out there that would be more than happy to sit down for a few minutes and talk to somebody, uh, find out who's going out for drinks when and where, and just don't be afraid to reach out and 
find out who's doing what, when, where, and who's sociable and be, be ready to just hop out there and offer to take somebody out for drinks online. It's, it's scary sometimes, but it's, it, it all almost always pays off one way or another. If you reach out to enough people, I guess that was kind of a broad subject, but basically just embrace the digital side of our business now. So sort of as much as you're talking about embracing the digital age, you're all, those time-tested um, self-promotion things are still critical. Of course. Of course. Our business is run so much on relationships and who knows who and what. And, you know, obviously it's going to be what you know that keeps your job, but it's, it's who you know that gets you your job. Introducing myself to some people has always been intimidating to actually go up and shake somebody's hand. But if you've started it off with just an email, like, my name's Chris Lowe, and this is what I've done, and I would love to meet you, more often than not, I'll get a response saying, hey, yeah, it turns out I'm going to be in Vegas at this time. Why don't you come by and we'll meet? And then it, it, it's amazing how far that can go sometimes. That sounds like uh, really good and really actionable uh, information there. Yeah, I think so. Thanks very much for joining us. Right on. Thank you very much, Jason. All right. You have a good evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go.